Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3? We'll be looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a brief story too concerning the white rose that's here at the front. Uh, In our uh, services, we often put a white rose at the front for someone who has made a commitment to Christ recently. Uh, Red roses for those new babies that are born to families, and we've had a lot of red roses lately, but this morning we have a nice white rose. And it's for a man who passed away recently who came to faith in Christ before he died. And it's kind of a neat story of how um, this was a man who had not really embraced Christ in his life at all, kind of kept some in his family or relatives who really knew Christ at a little bit of an arm's length, didn't really want that. But when he came near the end of his life and he knew he was dying, his main concern was his salvation. And uh, he didn't really know what to do in some ways, and so he had called for a pastor that he knew who came from a particular denomination, I won't mention, that really did not give him a lot of hope, not a lot of assurance, something that he could hold on to. And so a member in our church who knows this man as a relative uh, was talking, and we prayed together, and then we also, uh, there was another man who knew a pastor in that community from an evangelical church who went to visit him and talked with him and was able, just to make a long story short, in the course of that conversation, lead him to Christ and give him the assurance of his salvation that it's not based upon what we do, but it's based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. And this man trusted in Christ as his Lord and Savior and passed away this last week. And we praise God for those opportunities. How much better it is to come to know Christ at a young age and to walk with Him all the days of our life. But how good it is that God, even in His mercy, will save us if we turn to Him before it's too late. Let me read this passage of Scripture from 1 Timothy 3, and then we'll move into the text this morning. Paul writes, Here is a trustworthy saying, If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, but he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Help us to hear it as truth and as relevant. It applies to our church and to those who would lead us. But it also is a word for us as well. And may you speak to us this morning. Amen. Today and next Sunday, we are going to be talking about spiritual leadership in the church. And it's a very important subject because you might say, as the leaders go, so will go the church or congregation. And it's interesting, as Paul begins his uh, letter uh, writing on this subject, he says that if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that is an elder... He desires a noble task. It is a good thing to aspire to. You see, there are some ambitions that are not godly. 
If a person goes into ministry just to serve himself or to make a lot of money or to uh, think that this is a way to have power and prestige, those are ungodly motives. But if someone goes into ministry or seeks to work in a church to serve Christ and to serve his church, Paul is saying that is a good thing. That is a noble ambition. We also need to recognize that the work of an elder is a difficult task. We often work long hours. There are great demands on time and energy. It's not a 40-hour type of job if you are in full-time ministry. And for those that are lay leaders in our church that are elders, they have their own jobs, occupations that they work at, putting in often 50 hours a week at that, and then volunteering their time above and beyond to serve you and to serve us as a congregation. It takes time and energy. And they give something up to do that. It is a great responsibility to both oversee the church and bring the gospel to a lost world. There are challenging circumstances that we face. There are many needs in the church and community. And we work with volunteers who also have limited time and resources as we join hands together. It is a never-ending job. There is always more to do. There's always another phone call you can make, another person you could see, another visit you could make, or another book you could read, or study you could lead. And you have to make choices about what are the priority things that need to be done today. We are often called into crisis situations. Uh, if anyone has worked with sheep, literally, uh, you know that sheep are often messy, smelly, and stubborn. They don't always do what you want them to do. I said that in the first service, and I could tell a couple of people turned to each other and said, did he just call us messy, smelly, and stubborn? <laughs> well, in a sense, people are like that too, aren't we? We're all in the same pen, and we often get into messes, and we need somebody else to help us with that and get in there and do life together with us, and that is the work of an elder. And on top of all that, we are in a spiritual battle with an unseen foe. Two times in this text, Paul mentions the devil, our adversary, and his attempts to undermine the work of elders in ministry. And we all know how damaging that can be when an elder falls. But being a leader in the church is also a noble task. We serve the greatest leader who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. He is the one who is Lord over all lords and King over all kings. He's been given the name that's above every other name. We belong to the greatest organization that will outlast all others, the church. Businesses will come and go. Nations will come and go. But the church remains. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We also have the greatest mission the world has ever known, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. I mean, this mission is greater than finding a cure for AIDS or a cure for cancer or a cure for heart disease. As wonderful as those things would be and as significant as they would be to our world, we have the answer to an even greater problem, our sin. We have an answer that can bring to people hope and eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we have been given unlimited resources through Jesus Christ. 
Paul tells us in Philippians 4.19 that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Those are wonderful promises that he gives to those who would seek to serve and be a part of the church. Now, in the early church, there were two types of leaders that were mentioned here, two offices in the church. There were elders and there were deacons. We're going to talk about elders this Sunday and deacons next Sunday. And there were two words that were used to describe elders, or they were called by two names. Presbyteros was the first one that is translated as elders, and it refers to a person's age or spiritual maturity. The second word, episkopos, referred to, uh, is translated as overseers and referred to their responsibility to give oversight to the church. So they were to look for men who had a certain uh, spiritual maturity and age and, and recognition that way, respect, and they would also be people who then would be in charge of overseeing the church and its ministries. Both are used interchangeably. For example, in Acts 20:17, Paul asks for the elders in Ephesus to come and meet with him, and he refers to their work as overseers. And the same is true in Titus. Titus is to appoint elders, and the work that they do are being overseers. In the New Testament, we also find that each church had a plurality of elders. It wasn't just one leader in a local church, but it was a team that worked together. We see that in many different places in the New Testament. Pastors are elders. They serve, serve alongside lay elders in a congregation. And pastors usually serve as the primary leader among leaders because we are able to do this full time and to give ourselves more fully to the work in a congregation. But for all of us, whether uh, lay elders or those who would serve as pastors, there are certain qualities that you should be looking for as a congregation in those who lead us. And there are actually 15 different things that Paul mentioned in these short verses. I'm going to group them under four headings. The first thing we look for in selecting elders for leadership is we look at their character. We see that in verses 2 and 3. And this is quite a daunting list when you set it out. Actually, after the first service, one of the elders came to me and said, that's pretty sobering to see that all up on the screen. And indeed it is. Paul tells us here that an elder must be above reproach. The word that's used there is blameless. Now, it doesn't mean perfect, or that would be a very short list indeed. That'd be tough to find anyone to serve. But what is their character like, and how do they serve the church? Is it their aim to live a godly life? And how importantly, and this is an important thing, is how do they handle their mistakes when they do sin or have offended someone? Do they go to that person to make it right? Do they ask for forgiveness? Do they show every indication in their life that they desire to please Christ in all that they do? Have they a good reputation in the church? They are to be a one-woman man. In other words, they are to be faithful to their wife. And many have asked the question here, how does divorce affect this? Does divorce disqualify someone from being an elder? Well, that would depend upon the circumstances of the divorce. 
There was a time in the history of the church where they actually, and, and some still today, would apply this and say that a no one who has been divorced or even remarried can be an elder. Uh, they took this meaning that uh, you should only have had one wife. So even if your wife died, you could not remarry and be an elder. I mean, that's how some have applied this. Others have applied it in this way, and this is the way we apply it in our church, is that if there were biblical grounds for a divorce and remarriage, and the elder was the innocent party, so to speak, then he could serve as an elder in the church. Sometimes people were married and divorced before they came to faith in Christ. Sometimes a person in their marriage was deserted by an unbeliever, and then later they themselves remarried a believing spouse. There are different circumstances. The important distinction here that I believe that Paul is emphasizing, though, is that this person who serves as an elder is to be faithful in their marriage. They're not a skirt chaser. They're not looking after someone else, but they are walking in integrity. They are to be temperate, sober-minded, having good judgment. I really appreciate the men who serve as elders in our congregation because of this. It is one of the best boards that I am on, and I look forward to our meetings together because there's a lot of discussion and give and take, and I appreciate that people do say what they're thinking. Because we look at issues from different perspectives. Some people are very task-oriented, and they just want to get the job done and move the church forward. And some people are much more relational, and they're concerned about the person or how that's going to affect the individual. And we need to hear that as we talk together. We don't want to have just yes-men, if you will, on our elder board. But we want to have people who know the congregation and who give that kind of input that we need into our decisions. They are also to be self-controlled. In other words, able to discipline themselves. Early on in my ministry, I heard Howard Hendricks talk about this and make this statement, that others may, but I may not. If you want to be a spiritual leader in the church, you need to learn to discipline yourself. And it's not just over issues of sin, but it's over how you use your time and how you develop your gifts and the work that you put into that. It's one of the reasons why I've said to you before that I rarely go out on Saturday night because I want to be at my best on Sunday morning. I want to be here to give this my best energy and focus. And so on Saturday night, I'm going over the message and I'm praying for the service on Sunday as I prepare and get ready for this. That's not a sin issue. That's a priority issue in my life. And the same thing, if we are going to aspire to leadership, then we need to work in our faith and be people that are in the Word and growing in Christ. You go on in this list, an elder is to be respectable, having a well-ordered life. And you could look at the different areas of how he goes about his work, how he handles his family. All of those things play into that. They are to show hospitality. In other words, they are to have an open heart and an open home, willing to meet with people and to invite them in. And I find that hospitality today in the church is almost a lost art. I remember growing up how people were more free about having people over into their homes and there was visiting. And for us and our family, Sunday afternoons was a time to get with people and to do that. And we've kind of lost those things. I don't know if it's because people are so busy or they just don't want to do it anymore. 
But he is saying here that as elders, it's very important for us to open our home. Whether it's leading a Bible study or entertaining or having friends over or people who are new to church to do that, to build relationships and give that time. He says that an elder is not to be given to drunkenness. Uh, Literally, it reads, he is not to linger with the cup. That's kind of an interesting phrase, not to do that. The requirement here was not total abstinence, but it was discipline in this area, not giving themselves to too much wine. Eighth, he says they are not to be violent, but gentle. Literally, not a striker. Not somebody who comes to blows. Not somebody who is abusive. Ninth, they are not to be quarrelsome. Not one who stirs up trouble, but one who is a peacemaker. In other words, an elder is to be one who is always seeking a peaceful solution to a thorny problem. And we deal with thorny problems. There are situations we find ourselves dealing with where we know that not everyone's going to be happy by the decision that's made. But we need to do what we feel is best for the congregation or a particular ministry. That's the responsibility God has given to us. And we work for peace in the congregation. And then finally, he says, they are not to be a lover of money, not greedy. We are not in this for financial gain. And certainly not those who serve of their own time and energy freely outside of their work. We do this to honor Christ and His church. And we do it to build His body in this community. Well, these are the character qualities that God wants to see in those who would serve as elders, but He wants to see it in all of us, really. It's like looking at a list that shows the fruit of the Spirit. That's not just for some people. That is for all Christians. And really, you know, when you look at this list, God wants all of us to have a good reputation in the church. He wants all of us to be faithful in our marriage, to be temperate, self-controlled, respectable, to show hospitality. It's not a different list of requirements for elders than for all of us as Christians, but he does expect a higher level of consistency, living that out in our life. And so these qualities are for all of us to aspire to and to show in our life, but especially those who would be leaders in the church. A second area that we look at in choosing our elders is the area of ability. And we see that in verse 2 and verses 4 and 5. The Scripture says that they must be able to teach. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone who is an elder is going to preach from the pulpit or have that kind of ministry. That would be pretty intimidating for some because they don't have that same gift mix. Some will teach one-on-one. Some will lead a small group Bible study. Some will teach to the whole church or speak and teach in our adult Bible fellowships. Some will teach from their experience as a Christian businessman or a Christian teacher or a Christian doctor or whatever their profession may be. And we need that. That's very valuable. They can do something I can't do. For example, if we have a young man who's starting a business in our community and he wonders, how do I do this as a Christian? How do I set things up, do my financing, or work with employees and honor Christ in my work? It is valuable for him to be able to talk to an elder in our church who's a Christian businessman and say, would you help me or would you mentor me in this and kind of walking through what I should know? 
The same thing if somebody's been a teacher for many years and they are a Christian and they've kind of worked through this issue of how can you teach in a public school and live out your faith? And what do you have the freedom to do and not do in that setting? As a teacher who's experienced in that, as a Christian, if they serve as an elder, they can mentor other teachers in that regard. And it could be on any occupation that that can come up. To do this well, we need to be a student of Scripture and a lover of God's Word. We need to be a people who are in the book and applying it to our lives so that we can teach others well. That is a requirement for serving as an elder. And secondly, they are to be able to lead. How do we know if someone can lead? Well, Paul says that he must be able to manage his own family well. Look to his family. Do his children obey him with, re- with proper respect? And he tells us if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Now, why does he say look at his family? Why doesn't he say look at his business? I think there's a reason here. It's because the church is a family and it's not a business. The family better describes the way the church is to function in terms of relationships and encouraging one another and pulling together and having an attitude of forgiveness and kindness toward one another. We are in this together. Today there's a great deal of pressure to put upon the church to run it like a business where the pastor is viewed as a CEO rather than a shepherd. And I don't like that. I like the biblical models that are found in Scripture to describe what we are to do. And that doesn't mean as a church that we shouldn't use good management practices or that we don't need people in our congregation who have worked in human resources or the legal profession or things like that that can help us to do everything in a way that honors Christ. But the model, the picture for the church is that of a family. We have a relationship with one another. We are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and God is our Father. And so we seek to honor Him and how we treat one another in that family. He tells us here too, uh, he says a word about um, managing our children. And that's another area where a question often comes up. Can someone be an elder if their growing children are not walking with Christ or if they have older children who have turned away from Him in some way? That's a legitimate question to ask. And we would need to look at a person's family in terms of how they have trained their children? Did they bring them to church? Did their children obey them, as it says, with proper respect? Did they respect the other adults in the congregation? Because the word that's used here for children is a word that's used for younger children, those that are still in our home and under our authority. I think it's a recognition that the Scripture has that as children get older and become adults, They have to make their own choices, and sometimes they may choose not to walk with Christ. And believe me, that brings great sorrow to our elders or to you as parents who may find yourself in that situation. But does that disqualify someone from ministry if they have been faithful to bring their children to church and to teach them everything that they could from the Scripture so that they might walk with God? And no, it doesn't disqualify them. You need to look at the circumstances surrounding that. The third area we look at is spiritual maturity. 
Oh, excuse me, I do have to mention these. I wanted to include this slide about other responsibilities because Paul mentions two in this passage, but as you look at the Scriptures, you'll find that there are other responsibilities that elders have. On our particular elder board, we have been meeting twice a month. Once a month we meet and we've been working through a study of the Scriptures and what are the responsibilities of elders. And you can see from these other passages, elders are to model Christ-like behavior. We find that in 1 Peter 5.3. They are to maintain doctrinal purity. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. We are to discipline unruly believers. That's why the scripture says, Warn a divisive man once and then a second time. And if he doesn't listen to you, let him be as an outsider to the church. We are to oversee the material needs of the church. And again, an example of that is 1 Corinthians 16. And it doesn't mean that the elders need to do the accounting and the bookkeeping. No, not at all. You can delegate those things and they should be delegated. But it does mean that we are responsible for the oversight of everything that happens in the church from the public worship services to the planning for the future and the accounting and ministries that take place. And then finally, we are to pray for the sick. And the book of James talks about that, and that is something we have done frequently. And many in our congregation at different times have asked us to pray with them, and we will do that. We'll do it after church on a Sunday morning or some other time that works, and we will meet and we will pray with you. And if you have a request in that regard for something serious that's going on in your life, and you would like prayer, just talk to Olin Phillips or one of the other elders or myself as a pastor too. A third area is that of spiritual maturity. Paul tells us that an elder should not be a recent convert. He shouldn't be a new believer or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. The danger here is pride. And he may fall even as Satan himself seemed to give in to pride and rebelled against God. It is better to wait than to appoint someone to leadership too soon. You'll notice in uh, the book of Acts, for example, William Hendrickson pointed this out, that Paul did not appoint elders in many places on his first missionary journey. He waited until his second journey, often leaving someone responsible behind, and then as they worked with and trained people in the church, then on that second journey, they appointed elders in those local congregations. This is a question that comes up with new church plants. For example, we've helped to start two new churches. It's why we like to send out from our congregation some of our best people who can be leaders in that new church so that there is time for them to grow other leaders and not have to put someone into that place of authority too soon. And then fourth is the area of reputation. Verse 7 says that uh, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. He should have a good reputation with those in the community or those who know him well. The words above reproach in verse 2 may refer to his reputation among believers inside the church. And so both within the church and outside of the church, our elders are to be respected and have a, a good reputation among uh, those who know them. 
Because nothing hurts the reputation of the church more than the bad reputation of its leadership. That's why when it comes to our congregational meetings, too, where we are affirming our leaders, we give you their names ahead of time. And if there ever was a situation where you saw a name and you thought that person was not qualified to be an elder or leader, then you should come to us and talk to us about that. And we will address it as a board and then take care of it in that way. Leaders are to have a good reputation with those inside and outside of the church. How many people have been turned off to the church because of scandals and abuses by clergy and church leaders? And you can think of the recent news, whether it is something like what's gone on in the Roman Catholic Church with the uh, issues of child abuse, or whether it's been like the National Association of Evangelicals where Ted Haggard recently had to resign because of his immoral behavior, or someone more recently now like Mac Hammond, who is in trouble with the IRS for inappropriate use of funds. Those stories, those situations affect the whole church and bring dishonor to Christ's reputation. So how do we select elders for leadership in the church? It is not by age, because age, physical age, doesn't always equate with spiritual maturity. We want men who have walked with God. It's not by success, because success in business doesn't necessarily translate into success in the church. In the same way, it's not by popularity. I think if we went by that, I don't think Paul would even have been elected in some cases. We select leaders based on their character, their ability to teach and to lead, their spiritual maturity, their reputation, both inside and outside of the church. Now, I want to introduce our elders to you this morning because some of you may not know them. And as I read their names, if they're here in this service, I'd like you to come to the front of the church to stand. And as I close our message, my message this morning, I want to pray for these individuals. But Olin Phillips is our church uh, chairman and chairs the elder board. And Tom Johnson is our vice chairman. Paul Post, Jack Lundberg, Ron Tim, Dave Tolberg, Don Button, Pastor Ron Burgett, Pastor Dan Lundberg, Pastor Aaron Cavanaugh, and myself uh, serve and meet together, as I said, twice a month on our elder board to take care of needs that we are aware of in the church. I appreciate these men greatly and the work that they do. And you know them. They are out there serving in ministry. That's why they're elders, because they, by their example, are involved in many different areas of our church's ministry. So what is our responsibility to these elders as a congregation? Here are the four things that I would ask you to do as a congregation. You have the responsibility to pray for them. And I ask you to do that regularly. You are charged in Scripture with honoring and respecting them. And I ask you to do that in your words and in your actions. You are asked to follow their leadership. And the Scripture puts that in a very strong way. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. For they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. That's a strong word where God says to those who lead in eldership that they will one day give an account before Jesus as to how they led the church. But God will also ask you as a congregation, did you honor and respect and pray for and follow the example of your elders? 
And then finally, it says, imitate their faith. In verse 7, the scripture says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men that you have raised up to serve as elders in our congregation and others in who in years past have also served in this role. We have grown because of their leadership and the way that you have worked through them. And we thank you for them. Father, protect these men. Guard their hearts and help them to be holy, to walk with you in a strong relationship growing. Protect their families, their marriages. May they honor you in their homes and with their spouses. Give us wisdom as a church as we follow their lead and their example and help us to make decisions that are pleasing to you. And as a congregation, help us, Father, to be much at prayer, to be supportive and encouraging and honoring to those who lead us, to respect them and to follow their example and imitate their faith. We do this all as under-shepherds to the chief shepherd, Jesus. And we pray that all that we do may be honoring and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.